The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. We are now about to embark on a historical romp through the history of this congregation and this great city. From its very beginning, members of this congregation were conscious of human greed, obtuseness, and racism. The first piece of music we will hear was the most popular among those who came here in the gold rush of 1849. <laughs> Popular songbooks suppressed many of the worst lyrics. That tune, written by Kentuckian Stephen Foster in 1847, when sung by men coming here to California in the gold rush, perhaps the majority of them white Southerners, were sadly explicitly racist. They came along with ex-criminals from Australia and elsewhere. The San Francisco they came to by 1850 was both booming and violent and dangerous. There were among them, however, merchant class Yankees, including Unitarians. But the only New England-style church in town at first was Calvinist. That is, it required that members state why they felt they were among the precious saints whom God had predestined to save. And then on a September morning, a Unitarian from Eastport, Maine, Joseph Coolidge, the co-owner of a rather ramshackle hotel, ran into his one-time pastor, Reverend Charles Farley. Farley had come here like most of the other men, feeling like a failure. Churches he had served had not flourished. You must preach for us, Coolidge demanded. I can't, Farley replied. I brought no sermons with me. There's no library. And what would we do for music? Where would we meet? Well, Coolidge said that some of the most prosperous merchants in the city were Yankee Unitarians, and one of them was a Mr. Simmons who owned a hall, the Athenaeum. And he himself had a fiddle and a Unitarian hymnal, Reluctantly, Farley agreed he would preach. A male quartet was formed. It included one John James Pierpont, a Yankee Unitarian from Boston, later best known for composing a little tune called Jingle Bells. 
a male quartet because there were, as near as I can tell, at that first service, absolutely no women present. And let's just say the very few in the city were uh, not churchgoers. At Thanksgiving, Farley gave a rousing sermon of aspiration, I would say, called The Moral Aspect of California. And the newly chosen Unitarian trustees in their civic-mindedness had it printed and widely distributed. But after only six months, Farley went back east to his wife and son. He didn't even consider bringing them to this city. Fires too often struck a town made of tents and wooden buildings. There were arsonist gangs that thrived on extortion. And they were only gradually being countered by men like Captain William McCondry, the city's most reliable merchant banker and this church's first moderator. He organized a fire brigade, made sure that his own business was soon in a fireproof brick building. And when they wrote to Boston for a new pastor, promising, quote, the largest and most wealthy congregation in the city, they also promised to build a fireproof church. The first minister to answer the call, one Joseph Harrington, had great gifts, but like many others, he arrived through Panama, where he contracted yellow fever. He preached three times before dying. The trustees voted to give his widow his full pay for a whole year, plus a generous bit more, and then remarkably went on with building that building. It was down on Stockton Street, later above its later tunnel, and although pure and plain, it seated a thousand people. That's how many folks were often at services, even in 1851. But after a financial bust, only half the pews were occupied, and there was debt accumulating. By 1856, one trustee, James King of William, the editor of a newspaper, published an account that indicated that another editor of a rival paper who had been elected to the city council was essentially a George Santos-style fraud. He'd come straight here from Sing Sing. He had bribed the sheriff to stuff the ballot box to get him elected, and it was all true. But the accused met King on the street and shot him. And as he lay dying, outraged citizens, including McCondry, formed a vigilance committee of 8,000. They deposed the sheriff and the entire council. They hung a few miscreants who were obvious and ran off others and then made one of their own, Ephraim Burr, mayor, and he combined city and county government. That was the first time Unitarians in this city led the cleaning out of City Hall. It didn't last. White settlers were viciously purging California of its indigenous population. 
1857, the U.S. Supreme Court notoriously ruled in the case of Dred Scott that no people of color could be full citizens of the United States or have standing in its courts. Here in San Francisco, 800 African Americans, nominally in a free state, decided to leave. They fled to Victoria, British Columbia. And Mary Ellen Pleasant, a black woman who stayed and who had prospered owning laundries and boarding houses, posing as a servant to a white banker when he was actually her business partner, she took a trip to Ontario to deliver funds to white abolitionist John Brown for his Harper's Ferry effort to launch a slave insurrection. Most of the rest of Brown's backers, the Secret Six, were Boston Unitarians. While she was away, here in the city out on Ocean Beach, the recent Chief Justice of California, David Terry, challenged U.S. Senator David Broderick, a fellow Democrat, to a duel and shot him and killed him for not being sufficiently pro-slavery. It was into this context in April of 1860 that the man memorialized there, young Thomas Starr King, age 35, the self-educated son of a shoemaker turned universalist minister, having successfully served a Unitarian church in Boston, stepped off the steamer from Panama with his wife and child. Washington's birthday, 1862. Abraham Lincoln had very narrowly won California's four electrical vo electoral votes in 1860 by a plurality of only 700. Star King was one of the key motivators, now the West's most effective anti-slavery pro-union orator. While down at Calvary Presbyterian, their minister, a native of New Orleans, was preaching that white supremacy was divinely predestined. And even during the war, publicly prayed for both presidents, Jeff Davis as well as Abe Lincoln. Star King then rewrote a lecture on the very idea of the United States, doing it at the home of Jesse Fremont on Black Rock overlooking Alcatraz. He then delivered it to some 2,000 people in the city's largest hall, each attendee paying a dollar, the equivalent of about $50 today, to be present. And when the crowd applauded wildly at the end, his young parishioner, the writer Bret Hart, leapt from the Fremont box 
waving the stars and stripes, and the two began chanting to the tune we have just heard, We are coming, Father Abraham, 300,000 more. The crowd demanded that Star King repeat this lecture on behalf of preserving the Union and resisting the peculiar institution that had provoked the secession. And he did so all over the state, much of it on behalf of a new organization led by Unitarians called the Sanitary Commission, the predecessor of the Red Cross, motivated by the fact that more soldiers were dying of disease than in battle. Star King was by far the star fundraiser. He absolutely astonished the leaders of the commission by wiring drafts of $100,000 at a time. In effect, the gold coming from California in support of the union also was keeping afloat the credit of the federal government and blocking British bankers from helping the South, the source of their cheap cotton for its textile mills. Star King not only saved California for the union by raising more money for humanitarian relief than anyone previous in American history. He also did other things that are too often forgotten. Along with Jesse, he launched the West's first circle of naturalists, intellectuals, artists, and writers. Bret Hart was just one of them. There was also Charles Warren Stoddard, probably California's first openly gay poet. Star King put him in touch with Walt Whitman. And there was Ina Coolbrith, a refugee from Mormonism, hiding the fact that she was the abused niece of Prophet Joseph Smith. When she became the state's poet laureate, she encouraged other writers, from Joaquin Miller down to Jack London. Before coming out here, Star King had written a book about the White Hills of New Hampshire, their legends, landscapes, and poetry that simply embodied the transcendentalist teaching that if you want to see God, look at the sublime in nature and feel your smallness. See the disempowered as your sisters and brothers. No sooner had he returned from the mountain than he addressed all of the city's black population on August the 1st, which they celebrated as Emancipation Day remembering that it was the anniversary of the British abolition of slavery in the Caribbean. And then he got Carlton Watkins, a pioneer landscape photographer of the West, to go where he'd been, Yosemite, to take pictures of its wonders on mammoth plates. He delivered sermons from the pulpit called Yosemites of the Soul, living waters from Lake Tahoe, and filled the thousand seats on Stockton Street to overflowing so that the trustees felt they needed a bigger church. They built one on Union Square, which he named, that seated 1,600. They gave the old church to a black congregation. 
Star King worried that the new building, with its fashionable Gothic architecture, was too showy. He often lectured on show and substance. But sadly, he preached in it only seven times. He had exhausted himself in his ministry and his efforts, contracted diphtheria on top of the tuberculosis he'd long had, and died at the age of 39, saying, keep my memory green. That lovely tune, again by Stephen Foster, became popular just as Star King lay dying. His successor, Horatio Stebbins, inherited Star King's dream of broader, deeper public education and a role on the board of what was then called the College of California, a male-only struggling liberal arts college in Oakland that had been given some land on the hillside a bit further north. Governor Frederick Lowe, the second successive member of this congregation to serve as the state's governor, went to his minister, Stebbins, saying that the legislature wanted an agricultural and mechanical university. And Horatio Stebbins, although rarely recognized as such, became the effective founder of the University of California by offering up the land in what then became known as Berkeley and the college's charter on the condition that it always teach the humanities and the liberal arts. He was a regent for three decades. The end of the Civil War hardly ended violence in this area. Chinese immigrants brought in to build the Transcontinental Railroad once that job was completed, became the object of hatred by the white working class who demanded their exclusion. But Stebbins, at a banquet rep, rep, welcoming a trade delegation from Japan, publicly ridiculed the gubernatorial leaders of both parties as giving in to both ignorance and racism, while he lauded East Asian civilization as representing a spirituality older than Christianity. And Unitarian Congressman Horace Davis 
spoke out in Washington for, yes, there might be a need to limit Asian immigration because too often the people who imported the workers were exploiting them, and he blushed to even speak of why they brought in women from China. He himself taught the adult Bible class in the church for 50 years, sort of a la Jimmy Carter. And when two Japanese-American young men joined that class, he sponsored them to train for the Unitarian ministry. But that is a complex story that has to do with the changes toward militarization in Japan. Gender and social equity were still sorely lacking. I could tell a couple of rather salacious stories about all-male juries literally letting someone get away with murder. One of them involved Stebbins' son-in-law. But I'll forbear. He couldn't retire until he was nearly 80 for lack of a pension. But by the time he did, in 1900, the young adults in the congregation, rather bohemian in style, calling themselves Les Jeunes, had formed a circle that published a humor magazine called The Lark, which included from the pen of Gillette Burgess, a member of the church, that immortal ditty, I never saw a purple cow and never hoped to see one, but I can tell you anyhow I'd rather see than be one. Later he wrote in the final issue of The Lark, oh yes, I wrote the whole purple cow. I have to say I did so, but I can tell you anyhow. I'll kill you if you quote it. By 1900, both local political parties were so corrupt that a union labor party had arisen. Unfortunately, it was, if anything, worse. Its lawyer went around extorting the businesses of the city, saying that in return for their bribes, he would prevent strikes or wage demands. And he, in turn, paid off the board of supervisors and the mayor and himself said that they were so greedy they'd eat the paint off a building. In 1906, when the earthquake and fire struck, the union labor people were in charge. And the new minister of this church, heading the city's interfaith relief efforts, soon saw that the corruption at City Hall was so deep that it needed to be cleaned out again. He organized the clergy of the city to persist in getting the mayor indicted, even though at his first trial, someone shot the prosecutor in the head. Business leaders did not want this system that worked so well for them exposed. But at the second trial, when convicted, the entire board of supervisors decided to resign. Some of you may recall that when I began preaching from this pulpit in 2014, David Chu, who was then the president of the Board of Supervisors, came and told this story to us and said, why am I here? 
because you Unitarians are scary. To which I replied, I hope so. Some of our spiritual and moral influence, however, has never been all that dramatic. Liberal religion didn't exactly prosper during World War I or the Roaring Twenties, the Great Depression, or World War II. British-born's Reverend Sam Dutton, an early supporter of the NAACP, was the minister then. But one of his quiet congregants was a woman named Ida Shookman Brown, who had married an Irish Catholic and promised that their children would be raised as Catholics. But when she found that her husband was engaged in some rather shady enterprises, she looked for a church of her own and joined here and taught in the Sunday school, sometimes asking her children, are you quite sure that what your catechism says is what Jesus himself had in mind? Becoming the moral center of a family that produced two more progressive governors, her son Pat Brown and her grandson Jerry. The book I've written about our history includes a photo of Pat Brown's first inauguration with Jerry then in his seminarian collar looking past his dad, right at his grandma Ida. When World War II caused the unjust removal of the Japanese population from nearby Japantown, this sanctuary saw the inaugural service for the first church in America explicitly organized on a non-denominational basis to face down racism. The Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples, organized by Howard Thurman, a black minister and later mentor of Dr. King and a white colleague, was hosted right here. But by the time Sam Dutton retired, Unitarian membership was down to 125 in 1949. The average attendance in the sanctuary was about 30. The church, however, like this city, <laughs> has proven resilient through both booms and busts, ups and downs steeper than the hills. And in 1967, thanks to the post-war baby boom, this was the fastest growing urban Unitarian church in the country with over 1,000 members and more than 300 and 50 children and youth in the church school. Lucy and Edith Align, having grown up in the church, granddaughters of Mayor Ephraim Burr, then left the congregation the enormous sum of $1,800,000, the equivalent of $25 million or so today. While the Redevelopment Authority was pressuring the church to both purchase the rest of this new triangular block that was created by redirecting Geary Boulevard and building on it as soon as possible. Despite the reservations of three of the nine trustees and both of the ministers, Harry Schofield and Howard Matson, the congregation voted to go ahead and build the center that we now enjoy, not for itself alone, but for the whole city, the work began 
in 1967. If you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear sunflowers in your hair. If you're going to San Francisco, you're gonna meet some gentle people there. That summer of love, Harry Schofield later recalled, had people all over the country phoning him saying, can you find my son, my daughter? As idealism hit midlife relationships, the bans on him for pastoral support and counsel just soared. And the construction of our beloved center took two entire years. Structural problems were found with the church itself. Services had to be held in a synagogue, the church school at a YMCA, the offices had to be rented. Costs were twice what had been expected. And by the end of the process, membership was down to the 600s. Schofield felt exhausted. And after his wife Sarah died, he chose to retire early. His successor, David Rankin, was an eloquent preacher, but found paying off the mortgage that the church had had to acquire and raising in a family suffering from, again, violence. David Talbot has dubbed that era after the summer of love the season of the witch. It was just too much. It went on through the zebra murders and the, oh, at one point, with people still writing, I had an uncle who was a Unitarian once and I'd like to come to San Francisco. Can you help me find a cheap place to live and a job? Rankin stood in this pulpit and preached a sermon entitled, Shall I Swim to Honolulu? Instead, after five years, he left for a booming church in Atlanta where the schools were better this just after the Jonestown Massacre and the assassinations of Milken Moscone. His young assistant, Diane Miller, became the acting senior minister, hiring Mark Bellatini, an openly gay seminary graduate, to assist her. Some of you I now probably remember all this. Together they faced events like the White Nights when the gay community rioted, outraged over the light sentence given Milk's assassin not to mention disruptions from characters like the one who called himself Jesus Christ Satan. The successful partnership between Bellatini and Miller, however, however brief, was followed by several decades of ministerial partnerships. A few failed, one rather painfully, but the pa partnership of Margot Campbell Gross, now our Minister Emerita, and the late John Newcomb Marsh not only stabilized things for nearly a decade, 
but produced other partnerships to contribute to the public good. The late Kay Jorgensen partnered with Sister Carmen Bersodi to found the Faithful Fool Straight Ministry, and as Minister for Social Justice, helped launch an after-school and summer program for children in the Tenderloin and Western edition. Margot's sabbatical in South Africa led to a long-running partnership with the women of Copenhagen, and we partnered with Unitarian churches emerging from the communist era in Eastern Europe. I don't have to tell you that the beginning of the present century again brought further economic disruptions to the city. The collapse of the dot-com speculative boom, the huge increase in technology, the lack of affordable housing, much more. But perhaps I've said enough about recent history, except this. Reviewing the entire history of the congregation, I became terribly proud of how, for the last decade, we have weathered even a global pandemic, called new and gifted ministers, developed strong programs of human rights advocacy, lay chaplaincy, and have never forgotten that this, our spiritual home, does not exist for itself alone. It is truly a religious center with a wide civic circumference. The book that I have spent the last five years laboring on is now published, available on Kindle already, paperbacks being shipped. Two weeks from now, I hope to sign a few for some of you. I hope you'll join me in reviewing and celebrating the courageous yet unfinished work of this, con of this congregation and its members in making this city and indeed the world a safer, more civic-minded, and more just place to live. Amen. I'd like to rest my heavy head tonight on a bed of California stars. I'd like to lay my weary bones tonight on a bed of California stars. I'd like to feel your hand touching mine and tell me why I must keep working on. Yes, I'd give my life to lay my head tonight on a bed. California stars, yes, I'd give my life to lay my head and not on a bed of California stars. <laughs> 